0: Well, I have some, uh, what I call housewife poems. Dear God, the day is gray. My house is not in order. Lord, the dust sifts through my rooms. The greasy claws, the jagged tins, the dog that paws the garbage cans, the knot of hair that clogs the drains clots in my throat.
1: And with that... Welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves, a weekly conversation with one person about one extraordinary mother. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. My guest today is Peter Chemetsky, who's here to talk with me about his mother, the feminist poet, Anne Halley. I heard about Halley for the first time a couple of weeks ago, after a childhood friend from Amherst, Massachusetts, heard the podcast and said, you should talk to Peter Chemetsky about his mother, to which I said, who's Peter Chemetsky's mother? Anne Halley was born in Germany in 1928. Her father was Jewish, and he fled Nazi Germany with his family in 1936 and came to the United States. Halley's poems about the Holocaust are haunting and precise. The ones she calls her housewife poems are at once funny and searing. She died in 2004. Peter is the youngest of Halley's three sons. He's a professor of art history at the University of South Carolina, and he's the author of the forthcoming book, Turks, Jews, and Other Germans in Contemporary Art. Peter Chmetsky, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your mother.
2: You're welcome, Katie. Thanks for asking me.
1: I want to jump right in and have you read uh, a poem that you've picked out, uh, I, I have to tell you, I keep thinking it's called Sunday in the Park with the Germans. <laughs> uh, uh, this funny. Not, yeah, this is not Sondheim. It's a very it's a it's a heavy poem. Uh, so why don't you uh, give me some context and then go straight into the reading?
2: OK, this is a poem. <clears throat> I'm really only just going to read the first uh, stanza of three. It's called Germans in the Sunday Park. It's from my mother's first book, Between Wars and Other Poems, which was published in 1965. Um, and it has a lot to do with her childhood between the First and the Second World Wars in Germany. Um, and I picked this poem out because I think mom would have wanted me to be a little personal and self-promotional too. I actually use this stanza um, in the last chapter of a book that I've just written um, that's called Turks jews and other germans in contemporary art and i've just sent a version it back to mit press which is planning to publish it in the fall of 2021 so that's my self-promotion there and i use it in the chapter that's called spaces and times and it's about specific spaces in germany that evoke um historical times and in many cases say um The Holocaust. And I write about an artist in Dresden named Marianne Kahneman, a contemporary German Jewish artist who's done a piece that are, it's three benches in different parks in Dresden. Um, And next to the benches, um, there are bronze plaques in the ground that quote the law of 1940 that banned Jews from public parks. And so that's I bring it in there, in real, this this part of the poem, and I just say at that point in the book that her piece reminded me of this poem. Germans in the Sunday Park. Germans in the Sunday Park. Ein Volk. Family whose speech I try to hear. All commonplaces. They're blonde enough, like me. Plain people we would have called them. At home, between wars. When gracious in possession we could grow learned, good, Lucky, could buy some knowledge cheap, sniff the sour baby and turnip steam, the curtain beds and hallways, stale air from housework rags, moisture from swamps under Elfrida's apron, and the arms rattling our pails and coal. She ate fast and wore drab. Meanwhile, I learn in school, don't look at all at naked heads, sheared, of their lice and pride. So that's the end of the first stanza. So yeah, they're in the Sunday park. Um, and yeah, it does remind now of Sondheim, um, a kind of uh, very common and beloved space in Germany and usually well-tended places where people of various different uh Classes, ethnicities, and today races um, mingle, but there's this idea of a certain division between them in the poem. Um, who are the actual Germans? Are the Jews German? Um, and then at the end of that stanza, there is that kind of foreshadowing of the Holocaust with the sheared heads and the feeling of pride being stripped as well as looking for lice.
1: Yeah, she- Sheared heads is is such an enduring image from the Holocaust, isn't it?
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Tell me what you know about her um, childhood.
2: Um, she had a good early childhood, surprisingly enough. And I guess you're asking that because I mean, to jump to the chase, she had to flee Nazi Germany. Um, but she was born in 1928 in Bremerhaven, Germany, which is a port city up in the north. Both are. Her parents were doctors, they were uh, both general practitioners. My grandfather was Jewish, my grandmother was not, but she grew up in a, you know, comfortable environment. Uh, She had a twin sister, an older brother, a loving aunt, and so it was really kind of idyllic. Uh, The irony of it is she was born on November 9th. That's prior to, we think of November 9th, perhaps as the, the Reichskristallnacht, the pogrom, in November of 1938, um, but the reason it happened then was that that was the date that the Weimar Republic was declared um, <clears throat> after the First World War. Um, it's a date that the Nazis then went out and celebrated um, after they came to power in 1933. So in her earliest memory, some of her earlier memories when she's five, six years old, she thought these big Nazi celebrations and marches were in honor of her and her sister's birthday. So that. That's how kind of sheltered she was. <laughs> but she was, you know, a little kid.
1: Um, there's something that we're going to get to later, which is a recording of your mother doing a reading. And the woman who introduces her, who acts as the host, says when she's giving biographical information about your mother, she says, oh, yes, she was the daughter of a Jewish father and German mother. And I thought, isn't that interesting that she yeah. put it that way?
2: I know you yeah, have this idea that there are Germans and there are Jews. Uh, that's certainly what people would have thought um, in Nazi Germany. And we try not to continue those types of thinking. I mean, and my grandfather was about as German as you could be. <laughs> you know, he was a World War I veteran as a doctor. He was in a Jewish Prussian dueling fraternity when he was in medical school. uh, And he probably would have stayed in Germany. But according to the stories I heard, it was really her who insisted that they needed to leave, as well as um, the police chief in Gleimhofen, who was a friend of my grandfather's, who recommended at a certain point that it wasn't wise for him to stay any longer. My grandfather left in, in 1936 my grandmother followed in 37 they brought their son but they thought since they weren't yet settled it wouldn't be right to bring the two little girls they had been staying with their aunt who was my uh grandmother's sister so a non-jewish aunt in playmohofen um so you know and they were still going to school there i i do know at some point uh the officials came to her and said, oh, how can you be taking care of these two girls? You know, since you're, you have a job, um, maybe we need, maybe the state needs to take care of them. And I, that did not happen. She was able to protect them. Um, um, my mother went to, she gets to the United States in 1938, does her, you know, end of elementary school junior high high school and at 16 she and her sister renata both went to wellesley um, at
1: 16 was that common yeah, i don't
2: know they were just ready to go i guess and and i it, my understanding then is like my grandparents went in and talked to the principal of the school and they said yes max their older brother will go to harvard and the girls will go to wellesley so then she became she really became a writer she had been writing already but she had a great writing teacher and mentor at Wellesley Mary Doyle Curran, and then she went to the University of Minnesota um, to pursue a PhD in English um, in 1949. My father arrived the next year from Brooklyn College. I believe, I'm not sure if this is the first time they met, but uh, my mother was the grad assistant in a class uh, that Robert Penn Warren, the writer, was teaching, and I think my father was in the class.
1: What is your earliest memory from your point of view as a little kid Mm -hmm. of your mother producing poetry?
2: That's a good question. It's hard for me to say. I mean, I was born in 1958. You know, -hmm. I certainly remember her first book coming out in 1965 when I was six or seven.
1: And so did you... Try to understand what she was doing. Her poetry, uh, how would you describe what you as a a small child understood and now what you came to understand later?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I understood the words. I didn't understand the meaning. It's pretty straightforward English, though, with a a German in it often. Um, There's one poem in that uh, first book, Between Wars and Other Poems, which is starts with the line, you can eat your cake and have it, but only if you eat to vomit. And my brothers and I always thought that was such a funny line, funny poem, but it's not a funny poem at all. <laughs> you know, it's totally about, you know, it's a Holocaust related poem. So what
1: what does that first line mean?
2: Um, well, I mean, it means that you can, uh has to do with res- uh, restitution and so forth. Um things that happened after the war when, you know, my grandparents got a little bit of money, uh, for the house that they had lost in Bremerhaven You can enjoy something. I think you can, yeah, take the money, but it's always going to be a little bit sickening. The reason that you're getting it.
1: Oh, wow. So do you have a memory of, of where she would go to write in the house? or
2: If we're talking about, uh, the period, you know, through the 60s. You know, we had three boys. I was born in 58, mm-hmm. my two older brothers, one born in 53, one born in 56. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on in the house. My father was teaching intensively at the university. And she and she was somewhat she she didn't see what she was doing as being this sacred calling, you know, like, I am the great artist, don't bother me. And I think she was way too much of a feminist from early on to behave in that way. Not that a feminist necessarily couldn't, but I know, you know, and she was steeped in, in rejecting that kind of German notion, you know, the idea like Thomas Mann, she he would, you know, lock himself in studying study and the kids, they're not allowed to come in until called and so forth. Yeah, she totally, I think, Rejected that kind of idea that, you know, I am, and she wrote poems about that too. In fact, particularly in her second book, uh, The Bearded Mother, where there she writes poems that are funny, kind of making fun of this whole idea of the divine inspiration. But I think she saw it more as, you know, her vocation or profession, um, something that she was trained to do and that she needed to do, certainly, um, do it. I don't think anyone does any art. Uh, unless they feel like they have to do it. But I don't think it was not something that that banished us from her existence.
1: And what's your um, memory of how your father uh, reacted to her poetry or um, gave her space to be a poet?
2: Well, I think he loved it. <laughs> I know he loved it. <laughs> and I think he, you know, he, he was very supportive of her writing, you know, and if anything, probably wanted her to, you know, do more, be more. uh And this this probably would be a, a kind of typical thing to, you know, be more proactive, as they say today, in terms of, you know, advancing her career, promoting her career. I, I think maybe early on, and maybe even later, you know, she wouldn't want him to, you know, read and you know, critique what she was doing um, and probably vice versa, too. He was an English professor. One line I remember, though, from that you know, kind of family lore is that when my mother was studying with and working with Penn Warren, that apparently he said in a class one day, I don't know if Miss Halley knows more than the rest of us, but she certainly writes it better
1: did Did she read poetry to you when you were kids?
2: well, rhymes and things not you know she wasn't reading us either her poetry or you know serious poets, certainly plenty of nursery rhymes, plenty of uh, uh, uh Mother Goose and Edward Lear, the nonsense books of Edward Lear um yeah, she read to us, and so did my father
1: when you were growing up, did she seem like other other moms who uh you know, would greet you after school with a plate of cookies? Or- <laughs>
2: uh She baked a little. She was not a big baker. Uh, yes and no. I mean, she did the regular mom stuff, cooking dinner, cleaning. Thing. But no, I always felt like she was a, l- a little bit different, though. And you said at the beginning that, yeah, we're both from Amherst. So I think you would notice the difference between, uh, you know, the town gown and the Intellectuals and others more, but my mother was very, and my father, they were very comfortable with, with everybody, I think. And, uh, something I said before, you know, my mother was from very early on a feminist. Um, and she, you know, treated pretty much everyone the same. She was not in awe of the great, you know, professors and writers. And I remember saying once late in life saying, yeah, you know, maybe we should have taught you more about, you know, how to hammer nails or something. We sort of thought that language was enough. Mm. And she was kind of starting to question that, whether language was enough.
1: Do you happen to know if she admired another Amherst Townie, Emily Dickinson? Emily? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah,
2: definitely. Of course.
1: Who wouldn't, right? Of course. Okay, so we I'm, I've got this queued up. So um, you uh, sent me something from 1968. Five, that was a reading that your mom did, um, I guess at UMass, right?
2: WFCR, Five College Radio, yeah.
1: Right. And back in 1965, it was, um, called Four College Radio.
2: Right. Hampshire didn't exist yet, right?
1: Hampshire didn't exist yet. So I'm even going to play this one poem that I isolated. The woman who's hosting it, and I don't know who that is, she said she was quoting a critic. Who said poems are most powerful when they're autobiographical. Mm-hmm. And your mother, um, introduced these as, um, she said, well, I do have some, she'd re- you know, she had, before that, she read some of these very dark, uh, poems about, about Germany and the Holocaust and the rise of the Nazis. And then she said, well, I do have some housewife poems. <laughs> so, yeah. So as long as we're talking about your mother as a mom, I thought we would, um, play this and uh one thing that you said and maybe you could remark on this before we play it is that you said that her voice in this sounds different than what it developed into
2: yeah and it might be what it was in 1965 and i just don't remember it and of course when you're with someone year after year after year you don't really notice how their voice is changing but i think there's a little bit of you know performativity going on there you know, f- of coming out of the 50s background of, you know, what a poetic voice should sound like. And I think later on, uh, her reading voice sounded just kind of more like her own and was, uh, anyway, I think it's a good reading, but go ahead. Yeah.
1: And also she said, um, in this that she didn't give her poems titles that like Dickinson, um, the first, uh, line tended to be the title. So, uh, here we go.
0: Well, I have some uh, what I call housewife poems. Good, let's have a housewife and, uh, poem. This is actually a uh, a kind of uh, prayer or spiritual exercise. Mm-hmm. This is, Dear God, the day is gray. My house is not in order. Lord, the dust sifts through my rooms. And with my fear, I sweep mortality, out my brooms, but not this leaning floor which lasts and groans. I, walking here, still loathe the labors I would love, and hate the self I cannot move. And God, I know the unshine boards, the flaking ceiling, Various stains that mottle these distempered goods The greasy claws, the jagged tins The dog that paws the garbage cans I know what laborings, love, and pains my blood would will Yet will not give The knot of hair that clogs the drains clots in my throat My dyings thrive The refuse, Lord, that I put out burns in vast pits incessantly, all piecemeal death, trash, undevout and sullen sacrifice to thee.
1: Okay, before we get into some of the imagery in that poem, like the clogged sink clotting in her throat Uh, i have to tell you that i was sitting there listening to this thinking okay there's your mother sitting in the radio studio and is she thinking to herself as she reads this poem oh crap did i forget to take the roast beef out of the oven (laughs) you know some of that imagery is really powerful
2: Yeah. yeah
1: Uh, and this would this would seem to be a woman who didn't ne- really. She really did not love the the housewives a lot.
2: Uh, yeah, I don't think she she didn't love doing it. Though she took she took pleasure in getting things cleaner, like anyone does. Um, Funny that, that this that, this particular poem. It, I, I remember that it got attention at that time because c- I can remember it, and I'm not sure exactly why it, it, it's a it's a wonderful poem but why this one got picked out uh particularly for that attention somebody else could figure that out um I'm not a an expert on poetry. It's interesting, all the invocations to God and the Lord in it, like looking for some things about her or looking to see if there were, I could find something online, you know, some publication or something. I ran across one of these uh, paper mills, places where students can buy, um, you know, term papers. And I could see, you know, the first page of one that they were offering that was about this poem. So apparently someone in a, in a writing class must have be, have been teaching this at some point. If They thought that some paper should get ground out, and it interprets it that Anne was a Puritan hmm. and is all upset about, you know, her relationship to God.
1: Did, did she believe in God?
2: You know, I don't think she believed in God, but I think she liked the idea of God as God has been represented in art and in literature. I also see this poem, and again, I, I'm not an expert on poetry, as sort of fitting into certain, um, I, I see it kind of like in a T.S. Eliot kind of tradition, like uh, Love Song of J. Alfred Prufock or something, this uh, direct address from the speaker and a certain amount of foreboding in it. Um, but, but, but... I think, importantly, certainly from a woman's point of view, and that's something that she was doing from very early on in her poetry and, I think, took some criticism for it, all this, oh, what's all this kitchen sink imagery?
1: So when you were little and people would say, what do your parents do, yeah. or what, what was your answer?
2: Uh Professor. My father was a, I had a little list. My father was a, a professor. And although he said, no, nah, don't say I just am a teacher. My mother was also teaching at the time of between wars. That's, yeah, she was teaching part-time at the university. I think they had a rule then that you couldn't have two, a married couple on the same faculty at full-time faculty. And so the women could never be full-time. Uh, she-
1: Hold if, on one second. Let's go back for a sec. You said you couldn't have a couple on the same faculty, so the women couldn't be full-time.
2: That was the assumption then that, you know, the wives were kind of just the trailing spouse. Um, Harumph. Yeah, well, I agree. Um, well, she, anyway, she taught at Holyoke Community College for pro- about 10 years or so and founded their writing program, and I think she was very committed to that. Um, to the types of students she was teaching there, you know, working class students from Holyoke. And again, her her mentor, Mary, came out of the working class in Holyoke and wrote this great Holyoke novel that gets taught in a lot of women's studies courses now. It's a remarkable novel, um, The Parish and the Hill. And then she resigned um, at a certain point when her writing career seemed to be kind of taking off. And that's when a story a story called the Kaiser's horses got accepted by the New Yorker and got to the, and as soon as it got accepted by the New Yorker, she got like contacted by a literary agent. Um, She got a contract for a novel with random house and she wrote the novel and the story got to the very point of being, uh, you know, in the galleys in the New Yorker typeface and everything. And then they never published it. And I don't know whatever happened with that, but they never published it. And then when she delivered her, her book to Random House, they didn't publish it either. And it was like something had happened. If anybody ever really does some academic research on my mother, uh, they should maybe try to get into those uh, files at the New Yorker and find out what happened, because that really sucked.
1: Do you think Random House dropped the novel because the story didn't get published?
2: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think their I think their excuse was, oh, it's not the novel we thought it would be, and that may be true. Um, but you know, Jesus, don't you like you know you, you look into these things, you read the persons, or you know what? I, I think they were thinking it was going to be a more. I mean, my mother was you know a modernist type writer, so it wasn't going to be you know a kind of quick easy read <laughs> a light read you know is going to be more along the lines of you know virginia wolf than along the lines of i don't know who i don't want to compare to anyone so you know she was experimenting with language uh so yeah they decided it wasn't what they wanted but i think i think if the new yorker had published the story but yeah i think it would have been different maybe we'll still get it maybe we'll get published i just had a friend in Germany, who's a translator, said, oh, I she just found in her files a copy of that. Um, Do you want me to translate a few pages? And then maybe I'll, and she's also a writer, show it to my agent and see if some German press is interested in a translation. I said, sure. And she has a, you know, there are people in Germany, that's where there's been a little bit of academic writing about her work. And there are people there who are uh, just very supportive. And because she was very supportive of a lot of particularly women Academics and women in general, early in their careers, many of whom then later became you know whatever famous esteemed i've heard a few of them say, "Oh yeah, your mother was the first person who took me seriously and i think I think for a certain generation of German woman uh, maybe she was a kind of substitute uh, mother figure <laughs> and one who was also an intellectual and a writer
1: i'm going to ask you one last question at the end of her life did she say ever say you know i had it's been a wonderful life
2: unfortunately no <laughs> but but uh, the way she died is that you know she was she con- she got multiple myeloma cancer of the blood and bone marrow and it really was um diagnosed too late so things went very quickly um, and she had been fine. You know, she was totally fine until like the spring of 2004. And then, you know, she started feeling crummy. And then they got this diagnosis and um, she died in July. But, yeah, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think she really got a chance to be retrospective like that. Um, but she would have said that. And she was a very brave person. And she did, she had said many times, I I think I said before, she was a little bit fatalistic, um, morbid. And she had said previously, no, you know, before she got cancer, that, you know, she was not afraid of dying. And I think, I don't think she said it like that. She said, I'm not afraid of not existing. So in a kind of existential way, she said, you know, that, that, the idea of nothingness. And again, I think that was rooted in her past that she, though, you know, she's not someone who went through, you know, the deep, the horrors of the Holocaust herself. She's not a survivor of a, of a concentration or death camp. Um, but I think she always felt that kind of survivor's guilt, uh, that she had gotten out and others had not.
1: I want to thank you so much for, for doing this, Peter. It was really eye opening.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And, uh, uh, it's probably, yeah, not something I could have done. Oh, maybe I could have, you know, 10 years ago, but yeah, it's been over 15 years now since she uh, died. So it's, yeah.
1: You mean not something you could have done?
2: Well, you know, emotionally and just kind of thinking about this, uh, that loss and Mm -hmm. a life lived Um, she died at 75 which is yeah not incredibly young and not incredibly old (laughs) and uh but she would have been the first to say you know this is not a tragedy
1: peter chemetsky thank you so much for talking to me about your mom
2: thank you thank you katie
1: and that's it this week for Our Mothers, Ourselves. I had editing help this week from Rachel Shayner Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry, and our artist-in-residence is Paula Mangin. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, and stay safe.
0: Oh, Mama, will I ever get to be like you? Tell me, tell me, Mama. What?